It's a joy to be with you again here at Cape Bible Church and uh, appreciate the elders' kindness to have me back again. I was here in the middle of March and now I'm here in the middle of May and uh, it's just a delight to see the work of the Lord here at this place and I'm praying for your elders and, uh, and your, you as a church as you look for uh, a new lead pastor. We pray that the Lord will bring just the right man. But uh, in the meantime, it's uh, a delight for people like me to come in and just help a little bit. And what a, what a delight it is in particular to be able to share with you things that are just really glorious about who God is. Uh, you, may, you may remember, if you were here two months ago when I was with you, uh, we looked at a picture of who God is from Isaiah 6, beholding the God of merciful holiness. And, and so we, we saw this picture of God in His greatness and splendor and majesty who then showed His mercy to a very sinful, needy, uh, ruined Isaiah. And what, what, a, what a glorious picture that is. And one of the things I emphasized there was that we really, in order to understand the mercy of God, we have got to understand first the majesty of God to see God in His fullness and greatness as the backdrop then for understanding it is that God who is so great, so infinitely full, who deemed it good and right to come to the likes of you and me in our need and, uh, and, and show His mercy to us. Well, there's a sense in which we're continuing that, that understanding of looking at the transcendence of God uh, as the backdrop for the imminence of God, the otherness as the backdrop for the nearness of God. We're continuing that today when we look at a doctrine of, uh, of God that is seldom talked about in our evangelical churches. It, it is the attribute of God's self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency. And though we don't talk about it much, I have come to see that it really is one of the most important uh, attributes of God to comprehend in order to understand rightly who God is and understand rightly who we are before Him. And I just need to tell you right off the top here, it's humbling. Uh, and, and of course, what we see in this case as it is so often is that there's an inverse proportionality principle at work here, that the, the higher we lift ourselves up, oh my, aren't we wonderful, you know, with self-esteem and, and all of our abilities, we inevitably bring God down. But when we make the correction of that and see God as the one worthy of esteem, God as glorious and infinitely full, God as the self-sufficient one, not us, then what happens to us? We inevitably see ourselves rightly for who we are as dependent upon Him, as humble, needy creatures. And this is healthy for us to see this. This, this self-esteem movement of our age is a lie from the pit of hell. It is not true. You don't have it in you. I don't have it in me. We have it in God. And, and not in ourselves. And so, indeed, this, this study this morning will help us see this. The structure of the sermon is very simple. You can find an outline, by the way, on the back of your uh, flyer that was given to you as you came in this morning, a brief outline for the sermon. It's a very simple structure. I'm going to talk with you, first of all, of all about a definition of divine self-sufficiency, so we all have in mind what that is and think about that a bit with you. Then we're going to look at a passage from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, to see that indeed this is the teaching of the Bible about God. And then we'll move to implications and application. So very simple definition, passages, and then uh, implications and applications of it. Uh, let's just pause for a word of prayer before we dive into this. Our Father, we do pray that you would do among us right now by the power of your word and by the ministry of your spirit in our midst that you would accomplish in us what we cannot make happen. We, we can't bring this about. And so we look to you, Lord, to do what only you can do, and that is to illumine our minds, uh, to be able to comprehend rightly in, in greater measure this morning who you are. Uh, help us remove misconceptions from our thinking and, and in, in, instead fill our minds with correct understanding of who you are as you have revealed yourself to us in the Holy Scriptures. And then we also pray, Lord, that you would inflame our hearts, that we not only would know you rightly, but we would love you and adore you and be humbled uh, before you and, and long, Lord, to live our lives in ways that would bring honor and glory to your name. 
So do this work, Lord, that, uh, that we depend upon you to do, and, that may, and may you be glorified in all of it. Uh, we pray these things in the matchless name of our risen and exalted Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, first of all, a definition of self-sufficiency. To say that God is self-sufficient is simply to say this, that God possesses within Himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. God possesses within Himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. Now, by quality, I have in mind everything that is qualitatively good, everything that is qualitatively good. Uh, what the Puritans used to refer to as the perfections of God, uh, which are sometimes referred to as the attributes of God, anything and everything that is qualitatively good is God's. God possesses those qualities, things like holiness, justice, righteousness, love, mercy, grace, power, knowledge, wisdom. These are qualities that God possesses within Himself intrinsically. Now, some of you might wonder, do you have to say that? Once you've said that God possesses these within Himself, do you also have to say He possesses them intrinsically? And the answer is, yes, you do, for this very simple reason, that it's possible to possess things within yourself that are not intrinsic to you. They're extrinsic, and you take them in from outside, and that's why you possess them within yourself, but they're not intrinsic to you. Now, a very simple example of that would be if all of us would, when I indicate, take a deep breath. Ready? Breathe in. Ah, that feels good, doesn't it? Well, that breath that is within you is not intrinsic to you. You have to be in an environment where there is air to breathe or you don't live. You are dependent upon something outside of you that you take inside in order for you to be who you are. But this is exactly the point with God, that He does not depend upon anything outside of Himself for His being God. All that He needs, as it were, to, for, for God to be God, He has within Himself intrinsically. They are His qualities by nature. He does not need anything outside of Himself for the fullness of who He is as God. A.W. Tozer, in his marvelous little book uh, entitled The Knowledge of the Holy, which by the way, if you've never read that book, you owe yourself the pleasure of reading through that book slowly. It's short, but my is it profound. The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer in his chapter on self-sufficiency in that book, Tozer writes, need is a creature word not worthy of the Creator. Isn't that a great statement? Need is a creature word not worthy of the Creator. Indeed, God has no needs of anything outside of Himself, for indeed He possesses within Himself intrinsically everything that is required for Him to be God. Every quality that there is is within God intrinsically. And He possesses those qualities within Himself intrinsically and eternally. So there never was a time in eternity past. There never will be a time in eternity future. It is not now the case that God lacks any of these qualities. They are always all fully His. For all of eternity, God is God. And finally, the definition concludes, God possesses everything that is qualitatively good within Himself intrinsically, eternally, and in infinite measure. Now, the word infinite is a negative term. It simply means not finite, which begs the question, what does it mean to be finite? Well, to be finite is to be limited, restricted, bounded. So here is what this definition is saying of God, of everything that is qualitatively good, every perfection, anything that we can think of that isn't in that category, perhaps things we cannot think of that are in this category of qualitatively good, God possesses all of them. He possesses them within Himself by His very nature as God intrinsically. He possesses them for all of eternity, and He possesses every one of them without restriction without limitation, without boundary. How amazing God is.
Well, indeed, let's take a look and see if this is taught in the Bible, the self-sufficiency of God. And the first passage I want us to look at together is in Isaiah chapter 40. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Isaiah 40, we'll look first at verse 12, but then we'll move on and look at verses 12 through 17. But first of all, notice with me what we learn about God just in verse 12 of Isaiah 40. Now, this verse begins with a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions are questions whose answers are so obvious you don't have to give the answer. Like, is the Pope Catholic? I think we know the answer to that question. At least up until the current Pope, we have known the answer to that question. That's another subject for another time, but in any case, uh, rhetorical questions, you don't have to give the answer. So here are some rhetorical questions from God to His people. Verse 12, who do you know, asks the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who do you know who has measured the waters of the earth in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens by the span? and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Now, these are all pictures. These are, these are mental pictures given to us to help us understand something of the immensity, the greatness, the vastness, the power of God. Now, look at that very first image that's given there. Who do you know who has measured the waters of the world? Imagine it, the Atlantic Ocean. The Pacific Ocean, uh, the Mediterranean Sea that would have been familiar to Isaiah in his day. Who do you know who can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? Wow, how big God is. You know, my wife and I have a very precious memory of a time with our own two girls when we were on vacation uh, in, the, in the state of Oregon, right along the, the Oregon coast. Uh, we had a little cabin for a couple of nights there, and our daughters were young. You have to know that to hear this story. Uh, Rachel was about four, and Bethany was about seven years old, and we had a couple nights in a cabin on the beach. So here, here we are, this beautiful setting, and the first morning we were there, I read Isaiah 40 to our family for family devotions with this idea in mind. I, I pointed out verse 12 in particular as we read it, that, that God can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand. Okay, so after breakfast uh, and our devotions were over, I said to the girls, hey girls, do you want to do an experiment with daddy down at the beach? Oh yeah, they're excited. You know, so they grab their towels and we head down to the beach. And when we got there, I said, okay, now here's the experiment we're going to do. I want you to stand here right along the shoreline where the waves are coming in, and I'm going to wade out into that Pacific Ocean, which was very cold, by the way. I'm going to wade out there and I'm going to lean down, and I'm going to scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands, and I want you to watch really carefully to see how far the level of the ocean dips when I do that. Okay, Daddy, they're excited. They want to see this. So I got out there in the water, and I, I said, are you, are you watching? Yeah, they're watching. So I leaned down and scooped up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. Said, oh, girls, come on, look again. Let's try this again. So I leaned down and scooped up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. So I came back, got down on my knees, eye level with my two girls. I said, now, girls, I want you to learn something really significant about the difference between how big we are and how big God is. Now, I'm your dad, and I went out into that Pacific Ocean, and I scooped up all the water I could in the hollow of my two hands from that vast ocean, and you could not tell anything had changed. I said, look at that ocean. Imagine a hand so big that if it came down and scooped up water, that ocean bed would be dry. That's how big God is. Wow, what a picture that helps us realize the immensity of God, the vastness of God. Let the, the, the rhetorical questions continue. Verse 12, who do you know who has marked off the heavens by the span? Now, the, the span is the distance between the tip of your thumb and the tip of your little finger. It's a measuring instrument that you have with you all the time. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? 
Now, and this would have been a very meaningful image to Isaiah in his day. In fact, in some ways, even more so because in a day before there were any electric lights and you lived outside, you lie down at night and you look up at the stars night after night, you would behold the wonder and the majesty of, of that Milky Way galaxy display that's out there in front of you. Although you don't know it's the Milky Way galaxy, but now we know that. So there are ways in which we can appreciate this metaphor in, in greater ways than Isaiah could have simply because we know a bit more about the vastness of the universe. So just, just track with me. You know all these things already, but let's just remind each other. Light travels at what speed? 186,000 miles per hour. No, per second. 186,000 miles per second. That's the speed of light. Now, at that speed, light leaving the sun, traveling 93 million miles to get to earth, takes about seven and a half minutes. The next closest star to us after the sun, we might call it our next door neighbor, right? When light leaves that star and travels to earth, it takes, at traveling 186,000 miles per second, it takes four and a half years to get here. Incredible. That's the star closest to us after the sun. And you think of these stars in the Milky Way galaxy, 10 billion of them, they estimate, spread, spread apart on an average distance of, of uh, 10 light years from each other. In, in just this Milky Way galaxy is astonishing. But how many galaxies are there in the universe? The Milky Way being an, an average-sized galaxy. Hundreds of millions of galaxies. The Hubble telescope found thousands more of them in, in the time that it's been up there. I mean, just incredible vastness of display of the galaxies of the universe spread, up, spread across the whole of this universe. Who do you know who could mark off the heavens by the span? Wow, what a picture, again, of the immensity of God. And then the last part of verse 12, who do you know who can calculate the dust of the earth by measure and weigh the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? I love that last image. Who do you know who can hold the scales upon which you weigh the mountains? Put the Himalayas over here. Put the Rockies over here. Hold the scales that weigh the mountains. Wow. God is so great, so powerful, so vast, so immense. Now, verses 13 and 14 they continue the rhetorical questions, but they shift the subject matter from the immensity and power of God now to the knowledge and wisdom of God. Verse 13, who do you know, asks the Lord, who has ever directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult, and who gave Him understanding? Who taught Him the path of justice, and taught Him knowledge, and informed Him of the way of understanding? What's the answer to those questions? Who has ever been God's advisor? Answer, no one. God has no advisors. God needs no advisors. Hear this one, friends. God wants no advisors. Why? Very simple answer. Because He knows everything perfectly. I mean, he does not suffer with the limitations we have, limitations of knowledge, which if we just knew, oh my goodness, God would do us all such a big favor if he would just make clear to us of all the knowledge that there is, all of that knowledge which is his, of all of that knowledge, how much of it do we have? And I think the answer would likely be something on the proportion of a grain of sand on the seashore. Ah, the, the vastness of God's knowledge. And so he doesn't, he doesn't have any limitation to knowledge. And number two, huh, here's another thing God would help us with if we understood of how much we claim to know, how much of it is correct. How about that one, huh? And God has no misunderstandings. He doesn't have any misshapen knowledge. His knowledge is knowledge of what is accurate and true of everything. So indeed, God has no advisors. He needs no advisors. He wants no advisors because He knows everything 
perfectly. And he's able to use that infinite knowledge of his to devise the very best plans, the very best means, means of carrying out the very best ends that there are conceivable. Indeed, God's knowledge and wisdom are perfect. So, indeed, when we look at these verses, verses 12 to 14, we realize, wow, the, the power of God, the immensity of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God is beyond our comprehension. It is perfect and infinite in its fullness. Now, verse 15 is where it, beca- it begins to be very humbling to all of us because now we begin to see implications of the greatness of God for who we are before Him. Verse 15, Behold the nations. Stop right there. Nations. By that, he means the collective totality of humanity taken together. All of the nations of the world, all of the peoples of the world, with all of their knowledge and and wisdom and power and prowess, what are they like before God? The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. I mean, those images are humbling, are they not? Drop from a bucket, speck of dust on the scales, both refer to something that is tiny, puny, insignificant, inconsequential. I, I just think of that image for a moment of a speck of dust on the scales. Picture this in your mind's eye. You're in the line at the deli counter, and the guy in front of you has just ordered a pound of sliced turkey. And the guy has sliced it off, and he's put it up on the scale, and he's about to press the button for the price sticker to come out. And the guy in front of you all of a sudden yells, and he says, wait a minute. And it kind of startles the clerk. And he says, what's the problem, sir? And he says, you're about to overcharge me. He says, oh, why do you say that? There's a speck of dust on that scale. I mean, if you were in line behind this guy, you'd start laughing. I mean, a speck of dust doesn't weigh in. Isn't that the point? Ah, now, some of you might be thinking, well, at least we're a drop. At least we're a speck of dust, right? Well, my friends, keep reading. It gets worse, not better. Verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up islands like fine dust. The image there is of a little child at the beach, you know, running sand through his fingers. God plays with the islands out there uh, like a little child would. Verse 16, even Lebanon, that forested area to the north of Israel, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17, All the nations, so here we are back again, the collective totality of humanity taken together. What are we before God? All the nations are as nothing before Him. Well, my friends, we've been demoted. Uh, We've gone from speck and drop to nothing. It can't get worse than that, can it? It does. Keep reading. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They are regarded by Him as less than nothing and meaningless. I think we've hit rock bottom. Indeed. Now, it is so important, so important that we understand what this statement means in verse 17, that the nations are regarded by Him as less than nothing and meaningless, what it means and what it does not mean. Let's start with what it does not mean. When God says the nations before me are less than nothing, are are, are before me as less than nothing and meaningless, He does not mean I don't care about those nations. They mean nothing to me. How do we know that that cannot be what verse 17 means? Well, how about John 3.16? God so loved what? The nations the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I submit to you, this is not a God who doesn't care about those nations. But even from Isaiah 40, you know if you keep reading this chapter, you know this cannot be the case, that it's, it's not the case that God does not care about His people or, or, or the, the nations of the world. Look with me at the very end of the chapter, beginning at verse 28. 
Isaiah 40, verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, here's the point of, that, of those last chapters. Why does God want His people to get it, to understand how great He is, how wise and knowledgeable He is, how powerful He is? Why does He want them to get this? And the answer is very simple. Because they are going to experience weakness tiredness. And the question is, what will they do when they experience that? And he wants them to know, come to me. I have power to give you in your weakness. They will experience ignorance and folly. What will they do when that happens? They will come to him who has knowledge and wisdom to give them. Why does God want them to get it? How great He is, how mighty He is, how wise and knowledgeable He is, so they will benefit from Him by coming to Him and seeking Him out. Well, I submit to you, if that's the case, then this is not a God who doesn't care about those people. He cares deeply about them. Okay, back to verse 17. So then, what does it mean when God says, of all of the nations of the world, the collective totality of humanity taken together... All of their might, their power, their prowess, their knowledge and wisdom, he says that they are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Here's what it means. If you ask the question, what can the nations of the world, all of the peoples put together with all that we have and all that we are, what can we add to the infinite fullness of God's greatness? The answer is nothing. We can add nothing because He possesses everything that is qualitatively good within Himself intrinsically, eternally, and without limitation. Indeed, He is self-sufficient. Okay, let's look at one other passage. This one from the New Testament in Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, where we see here Paul describing who God is in a very interesting context. In this chapter where we pick up at verses 24 and 25, Paul has been invited to the Areopagus in Athens where he is going to instruct these philosophers in, in who the real God is. And the irony of this is that the people in Athens believed that they had represented in their city every known deity. They had altars and shrines and inscriptions to every god that there was, except, ironically, for the only true and living God. They didn't know about Him. And so now Paul is going to instruct them on who the true God really is. So verse 24 Here's Theology 101 from the Apostle Paul. It doesn't get more basic than this in terms of who God is. Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now, you can see the self-sufficiency of God in this, can't you? It's right there in verse 25. He isn't served by human hands as though He needed anything. Well, if He doesn't need anything, there's only one reason why that could be the case. He doesn't need anything because He has everything. He has it within Himself. And so, indeed, He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need the help of others. He doesn't need provision from others. He doesn't need us for anything that He is as God because He possesses within Himself everything that is required for His being God. Okay, now, 
So Paul announces the doctrine of self-sufficiency here very clearly, but he buttresses it three ways. He gives three arguments for the self-sufficiency of God. The first one is the opening statement in verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. In other words, God as creator supports the doctrine of self-sufficiency. So here's my question to you. Think hard. This is worth it. What is the logical connection between God as creator and God as self-sufficient? Or to put it differently, what is it about God as creator that shows us that he must be also self-sufficient? Do you see it? Well, here it is. How do we know that God creates according to the Bible? He spoke and brought into existence a universe that had not existed before. But who had existed before? God. I mean, the universe began at a point in time, but not God. In the beginning, God, right? So God was existing already without a universe. Thank you. You get the point. He is God with a universe or without a universe. It's the same God. So the universe doesn't contribute anything to God. Rather, the universe is a reflection of God. Huge difference. You see it. The universe doesn't contribute anything to God. The universe in all of its part and the, the totality of it is a reflection of God. This is why the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory not of the heavens. What did the heavens have to do with being the heavens? Nothing. Why are the heavens the heavens? God made them the heavens. It is His power manifest in physical, visible form. His wisdom manifest in physical, visible form. His beauty manifest in physical, visible form. The heavens declare the glory of God. Indeed, God does not need the earth that He made as witnessed by the fact that He was God just fine thank you, apart from the universe, before he created the universe. So, God as creator supports the self-sufficiency of God. But then Paul goes on, not only did he create everything, but then verse 24, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Of course, heaven and earth, again, re refers to the totality of creation as it does in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, God rules over the heavens and the earth. So not only is God creator, but He's ruler over all that He made, which is just good biblical theology. To create is to own, and to own is to have rightful rulership over. Question, how much did God create? Everything. How much does He own? Everything. How much does He have rightful rulership over? Everything. You see it? Everything. I mean, this, this means anything and everything that we call our own is not owned by us before God. Now, at a horizontal level, as it relates to other human beings, there's a very significant biblical teaching about ownership, right, and, and private property and that sort of thing. I mean, stealing is one of the prohibitions of the Bible because that belongs to them, not me. So, I, I, I'm not to steal. You're not to steal. So, in human relationships, there's a very significant category of human ownership. But as it relates vertically with us and God, how much do we own before God? Nothing. Nothing. What's the biblical category before God of how we have what we have? Owner? No. Steward. Stewardship and ownership are very different categories. Stewardship means you're granted something that someone else owns to steward it, to care for it, to tend it, to, to, to watch over it, and so on. This is what we are before God. We do not own anything before God. Not family, not bank accounts, not houses, not anything at all. He owns it all. He rules it all. My goodness, we, we really need to see this before God, that we are dependent upon Him for everything we have, and we are stewards of every bit of it. So don't think when you drop some money in the offering plate, you've given God His due. Oh, no, His due is all of it, 100%. 
not, not just the tithe or whatever we might give. Okay, so now what's the connection between God as Lord and His self-sufficiency? And it's very simply this, that not, because God created everything, He owns everything, He rules everything, so God is never in a position as God where He needs to, where He's beholden to someone else or something else to make use of something that is not His. Oh, no, it's always His. To put it in a very colloquial kind of a way, God never has to borrow a cup of sugar from a neighbor in order to bake the cake He wants to do, right? He never has to borrow the lawnmower, as it were, right? Because I don't have that myself. No, He always has everything because it's all His. Psalm 50, you might look at this later. In Psalm 50, God declares, if I were hungry, don't miss the if there, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Indeed, He is ruler of everything. And then the last argument for self-sufficiency comes at the end of verse 25. So God is, is not served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So God is the creator of all that is, the sovereign ruler of all that He has created, and He is the giver of all good things to all people. Notice the two uses of all in verse 25. God gives to all people life and breath and all things. Do you see it? Well, I submit to you, if God gives all people all things, then He must antecedently possess all things. He has to have it to give it. So indeed, God possesses within Himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. He is a self-sufficient God. The dependence relationship between God and the world runs one way. How much, how much according to verse 25, do we depend upon God? For life and breath and all things, we depend upon God for everything. How much does He depend upon us? For nothing whatsoever. Nothing. He is the one who rules over everything and accomplishes His purposes as He wills. So we depend upon Him absolutely. How many breaths have we taken in the time since I've been preaching this morning? Every one of them a gift from God. Life and breath and all things from Him. So we depend upon Him absolutely. He does not depend upon us at all. He is self-sufficient. Okay, this brings us now to implications and applications of this doctrine. Four of them I want to talk about with you briefly here as we conclude this morning. First, because God is infinitely and eternally self-sufficient, God does not need the glorious creation He has made, either in whole or in any part, including His creation of human beings. As humbling as it is true, God does not need us or anything that we have to offer. Now, I don't know how that falls upon your ears when you hear it, but I can tell you this. When I first learned this, it was a shock, and I honestly did not know quite what to do with this, with this truth that I saw from Scripture, that God does not need us or anything that we have to offer, simply because it was such a shock, simply because it was exactly the opposite of what I was taught in my Baptist church growing up. I, I, I became a Christian at a very young age. My, my parents were charter members of a Baptist church. I learned the gospel there. I was saved there. Many good things about this church, but this story I'm about to tell you is not one of those. This is a, this is a very troubling story. I can remember I mean, just, just as vividly as if it happened yesterday, a fifth grade boy's Sunday school class, I was, I was in the fifth grade at this time, and a friend of mine in that class period asked our teacher a question I had wondered the answer to this many, many times and had never gotten an answer any, for, uh, from anybody about it. So he asked this question. I perked up and listened. He, he asked uh, to the teacher, why are we here? Why did God make us? And without any hesitation, here's the answer she gave. Ah, God made us because before we were here, He was all by Himself. He was lonely, and He had no one to talk to, 
no one to have fellowship with. And he thought to himself, wouldn't it be wonderful if there were other people like me that I could have fellowship with and could talk to, and it would fill this emptiness in my heart, this, this hollowness, this void within my own soul would be filled as, uh, as I had friendships and fellowship with others. So that's why we're here, to be friends with God. And I, when I heard the answer to that question, I thought to myself, what a wonderful reason to live. What, what a wonderful reason for my existence. I, I'm here to help out poor God. Poor God needs a friend. Well, I can be his friend. I, 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 can, I can fellowship with him, and, and I, I'm happy to help him out. You know, and many things in that church were kind of under the category. Now, they never did say this. No, no. But I look back on it, and it's very clear. It was under this category of poor God. Poor God needs our help. Oh, you know, th think, for example, of uh, a building program. You know, if, if we don't give... Poor God won't be able to do the work He wants to do in this area. Missionary calls. Oh, my. Missionary calls. T Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says most missionary calls put God on charity. Isn't that exactly right? They put God on charity. If we don't go, I can still hear it echoing from my childhood. Then how in the world will those people be saved? You know, by the way, that God did, did not have to use missionaries to reach the world. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He's everywhere present. He has all power. You know what He could have done? What He could do at this moment if He chose to do so? He could speak the gospel in perfect dialect to every single person on the planet in the next 20 minutes, and the whole world will be evangelized. He doesn't need missionaries. Uh, is that just a shock to you to hear that? So don't, don't confuse. He calls people into service. He calls them to missions. Don't confuse that with He needs people in His service. He needs missionaries. Huge mistake to equate those two. There's another reason for why that service happens, and we're coming to that in a moment. So, first thing to see is God does not need us. So, then it just begs the question, doesn't it? Oh, by the way, I, I just have to say this. By the way, what's wrong about this notion that before God created the world, He was all by Himself and lonely? What's the doctrine of the Christian faith that answers that? The doctrine of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit in intimate infinite, glorious fellowship, love, and relationship for eternity that far surpasses anything that God as infinite could have with finite creatures like you and me. So indeed, God is not lonely. So this begs the next question, why are we here? What is our purpose? And here's the answer. Though He does not need us, He loves us. Now, stop right there and just think how incredible that statement is, because our love relationships at the human level always have, no matter how deeply we love another person, we also need things from them. I mean, marriage is a great example of that. There's no one person in that relationship who is without need. You know, I, I'm just the giver. I don't need, I don't need to re receive anything from you. Oh, no. We are definitely interdependent in, in our need for one another. But God's love for us is a love in which He cannot, not only does not, but cannot receive anything that is not His already. He has everything qualitatively good in His own life in infinite fullness. So isn't it remarkable that He doesn't love us because He needs us? He loves us though He does not need us. This is true unconditional love at its greatest level. So, though God doesn't need us, amazingly, He loves us, and His purpose in creating and redeeming us is not that we might fill up some lack in Him, He has no lack, but rather that He might fill us up with Himself, His knowledge poured into 
our minds. His love and compassion, His holiness poured into our souls. We become finite recipients of the fullness of God. He created us to know in finite measure something of the fullness of joy that He knows infinitely and eternally as we are granted from Him His qualities reproduced in us. So He created us empty on purpose to be filled with His fullness, foolish to be corrected and instructed by His wisdom, weak so that we could receive His power. He wants us to experience in finite measure the fullness of joy He knows infinitely. Here's a simple, simple way to put an answer to the question, why are we here? To be loved by God. It's incredible to be loved by God. Now you think, well, well, wait a minute. I thought the great commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Indeed it is. But here's my question. With what do you do that? Where does this love come from by which we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? We love because He first loved us. So we receive from Him what then we give back to Him. You see it. Okay, next question. Why does God enlist our service? Think of those missionaries we talked about a moment ago that God doesn't need. Huh. Why, why, why does God call people into service? Psalm 100 verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness when Acts 17.25 says He cannot be served. Right? He is, he is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. How do you put these together? Okay, here's the answer. God doesn't need our service. That's Acts 17.25. So His call for us to, be, to, to, to serve Him, Psalm 100 verse 2, is a call to participate in the privilege and the joy of the ministry of grace that flows from Him into us and then through us into the lives of others. He could have done it just directly in everyone's life without going through us to be used in the lives of others. There's nothing I am doing right now in preaching this sermon, though I'm pouring my heart out in doing so. There is nothing I am doing right now that God could not do directly in your life. Any of the benefit that may come, God could bring about directly in your life without using me to do it. And I know it. I, goodness, I realize the privilege. So, so why, why does He call people like me? Why does He call you? Why does He gift you? Why does He gift the body of Christ to minister to one another? Because He wants us to enter into the joy and the privilege of what it means to be conduits of grace into the lives of others. To be fulfilled with the greatest fulfillment there can be. And that's the fulfillment of ministry in the lives of others. He loves us too much to just do it Himself directly and instead chooses to do it indirectly through us, and that is at least a, a significant share of the work that He does, through us into the lives of others. What a privilege it is. This is why He calls missionaries. It's not that He needs them, but because He wants them to have the joy of being the instruments of proclamation of the gospel of Christ by which people are saved and they come into fellowship with Him. What joy there is in that mission's work. Finally, last point. How can we know and rightly be related to this glorious, rich, and full God? You've got, got to realize what a significant question this is. Everything that is good is in God. Everything that is joyful is in God. Everything that is beautiful is in God. There is nothing good that is not God's. And here's the problem. We in our sin are separated from Him. This is really bad news because not only do, are we separated from the only one who has all goodness, joy, blessing, beauty in Himself, we then are separated unto its opposite forever if we remain in our sin. So what did God do? 
He knows we can't rectify this problem. We can't get rid of our own sin. We can't make ourselves right with Him. So what did God do? He sent His own Son to, to bear our sin in His body on the cross and pay the penalty we deserve to pay so that by faith in Christ, we might be reunited with the one who has it all. What a glorious, gracious, merciful God is. What love is shown. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sin. So, my friends, if there's anyone here that has not put their faith in Christ as your only hope for forgiveness of your sin and for the joy of eternal life, then do so today because it is only through Christ. Remember what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Uh, the one who has it all. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, trust in Christ. And if you're a believer, then, boy, commit yourself afresh right now to spend your life doing what you were made to do, to know Him, to, to receive from Him more and more from His Word through the ministry of His Spirit, through the ministry of one another in the body of Christ, to receive more and more of what He has to fill us up with Himself that will only be completed when we see Christ, and then we will be like Him forever. What a great God God is. He is worthy of our worship and adoration. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the privilege this morning we've had to consider some weighty, glorious truths about who You are. They are also truths, Lord, that are very humbling to us, but rightly so, in a way that is so healthy and good to recognize how deep and wide is our dependence upon You. So, Lord God, continue this work in each one of us that we may grow in our longing to know You more and to become more like You and to be used by You, Your conduits of grace, into the lives of others. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus, and we know with confidence you will answer this prayer because it's in accordance with your will. So we pray this in His name. Amen.